If you were riding through the streets of Miami in the early 90s, flipping through the channels on your car radio, you'd get the normal stuff. But if you turn the dial just right, somewhere between the static and the normal stations, you might stumble into a whole new world of sound. The world of pirate radio. Ride, slide, slip, slide. Ride, ride. Let's go. Chicken yelling high. Come Pump it. Pump it. Pump it. Pump it. Let's go. What a What a What a What a This was a world that was unregulated, unfiltered, and uncensored. DJs who wanted to play music that was less mainstream, music that the big-time radio stations wouldn't touch, would launch their very own pirate radio stations. They would buy an antenna, hook it up to a transmitter, and play music right from their turntables into the airwaves. They were completely unsanctioned by the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC. In other words, they were illegal as hell. You'll still find a few of these stations in Miami today, but in the early 90s, pirate radio was having a moment. And the DJs from that time would go on to become hood legends. DJs like Uncle Lau, the pure funk DJs. Even Luke from the Two Live Crew had a station. This is how DJs made their names in Miami, how they left their mark on the city. And in the early 80s, one guy was about to step onto the scene and do just that. Not only would he start one of the wildest, most insane pirate radio stations in the city, but he would change Miami's hip-hop culture by staging the first major hip-hop festival Miami has ever seen. That guy's name was DJ Raw. I'm Brandon Jenkins, and this is Mogul. But because they had put me on the front cover of Miami Times, of Miami Herald. <laughs> Not even Miami Times, but it was the Herald. My producer and I are sitting in a car in South Florida with Raw Medina, a.k.a. DJ Raw. He takes a second to rifle through some newspapers, papers that wrote articles on him back in his heyday. There is, yeah, that's it. Pirate stations shake up South Florida airwaves. The photo with the article is a big picture of Raw, grinning with all gold teeth. Raw's kind of a small guy, but in the photo, you can't tell he's 5'6", because his eyes are commanding. He's leaning over a set of turntables, one hand spinning and the other throwing up a peace sign. Before he was in the Miami Herald, before he was even a recognizable name in the city, he was a kid growing up in the Bronx, the home of hip-hop. It was the 70s, and Raw was right there for the birth. The Big Bang, Park Jams, Grandmaster Flash, all that. He considered himself a b-boy. The only problem was he'd fallen in with gangs, started selling drugs too. So Raw was just another kid who made his mom worry. 
my mom said, before they kill you, I'm going to send you to your auntie's house down south. So in the 80s, she pulled a fresh Prince of Bel-Air on his ass. Miami would be Raw's Bel-Air, his chance for a fresh start. It was a whole different vibe. South Beach was like, like for retired people, like old, you know, Jews and old people, you know, like the whole South Beach. There was no jamming or clubs over there. And at that time, don't get caught slipping too, because if you was walking around over there and you looked like you was gang related or whatever, get picked up, get your ass whooped and go to jail. There may have been a lot of old folks lounging on the beach, but in terms of gang activity and drugs, Miami was a lot like New York. At the time, it had a reputation for being one of the drug capitals of the world. And if you were in the right place at the right time, drugs would practically fall on your lap, which is exactly what happened to Raw. Raw was at work one day. He worked at a shipping center near the port of Miami. I'm the warehouse guy. I'm driving the forklift and messing around. I had smoked a joint that day. I think I was like, you know, just came from the club and I went straight to work. But a container came in from South America that was full of water, which I kind of, what the hell are they sending all this damn water down here for? Carl was curious, so he drove his forklift over to investigate. And when I lifted, I only had one of the legs inside and I flipped the whole pallet over and there's water everywhere. Raw noticed something else that had fallen out of the shipment. It looked like a small lunchbox. And it was taped up. And I was like, hmm, I'm putting everything together and I grab it, there's no water in here. Raw knew that the box he just found had come in from the port of Miami, a notorious drug smuggling port. So there could really only be one thing inside. Cocaine. So we hit up the owner of the warehouse. I say, look what I found, man. And he looked at that joke and he said, what's that? I said, it ain't water. And he said, uh, what we gonna do about it? I said, we need to open this shit. So we cracked it open, it was five kilos lined up inside. And he said, holy shit, he put his hand on it. I said, wait a minute, bro, I found it, you know? <laughs> the owner said the shipment belonged to some Colombians. So he called them down to the warehouse for a quick chat about the box they'd found. The guys showed up, two black Mercedes Benz, you know, everybody dressed up in their silk and everything, you know, gold down, like some shit out of the movies. They didn't even look Colombian. They looked like they were the Italian mob. After the warehouse owner finished talking business with the Colombians, Raw approached them. I said, so what, what are you, what you gonna do with this? And he says, well, we're gonna sell it. We're looking for clientele. And then the owner stepped in on behalf of Raw, saying to the Colombians, He said, this guy's from Wynwood. And he said, you from Puerto Rican town? He said, yeah. So he gave me some numbers on it. And he left them to me. And I was in shock. He said, take them. And I, I said, oh, snap. I took the five and I went and two days later, I had them all sold. Called the guy up and said, look, I got your money. He said, you got my money? I said, yeah, bro, I got your money. I sold them already. You sold all of them. I said, yeah, bro, I got your money. Hey, okay, meet me at the warehouse. He still didn't believe me until I busted out the money. I had like 18 or something he gave him to me. I had all his money and he was like, my goodness. Raw had impressed. So they started giving him more drugs to sell. 
Over time, he learned the ins and outs of receiving and distributing in Miami. It was like that first job in Miami was a drug dealer's version of an internship. And eventually, he moved on and used what he learned to launch his own operation. Marijuana, pills, crack, uh, cocaine, whatever was on the table, we were the outlet. He had his own guys, he was part of a gang again, and tons of money was coming in. Raw's world was starting to resemble what he'd left behind in the Bronx. But a big piece of that former life was missing for him in Miami. See, Raw was a huge hip-hop head. But in Miami, hip-hop sounded like this. When I went to a Triple M DJ party and the walls were up and they were getting down, I felt that vibe like I was in New York. The thing was the music, I couldn't break dance to it. You know, and and the 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 lyrics it was repeating itself. And don't get me wrong, because booty bass, all that music inspired me. That's what uh, Luke and Marquise and Rest in Peace, Fresh Kid Ice, Rest in Peace, all good people that I know, they were were my inspiration. But that wasn't my bag. I was a hip hopper. You know, I just couldn't vibe to that music. The energy was familiar, but to Raw, the beats and the lyrics weren't like the ones he grew up on. So what is a New York b-boy with tons of drug money to do? He made a very Miami decision. Raw launched his own pirate radio station. Yo, 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 you know what I'm saying? FM 91.7 is the station to listen to when you die here in Miami, y'all. You know what I'm saying? Radio 91.7. It was different from a lot of the mainstream stations and many of the other pirate stations, too, because the kind of hip-hop Raw was spinning was old-school beats laced with lyrical rhymes. One of their taglines was, Radio 917, we just hip-hop. And instead of booty bass, you might have heard them play a song like this. This is Brand Nubians, punks jump up to get beat down. A New York classic. And Raw went to great lengths to get 91.7 up and running. He ordered a 60-foot antenna and mounted it in his backyard. The station was kind of like his drug dealer passion project. Where Pablo Escobar spent his money on elephants, giraffes, and hippos, Raw had a pirate station where he supported a stable of up-and-coming DJs. And they all lived and spun in a 3,000-square-foot home, a home Raw bought because he knew it would be the perfect place for his station. People were sleeping all over the place. There was no criteria like from six to nine, this guy's gonna spin, you know, from nine. No, we didn't do it like that. You know, they were there, the bodies were there, the DJs were lined up. There was always at least a dozen DJs ready to spin on call. And they used to come, even DJ Cali was walking through. DJ Cali would, hey, is it okay for me to spin? Yeah, let D, who's up now? Hey man, Give, give DJ Cali a break. Let him get up there and do a couple of hours. You could get back in, back on in a couple of hours. The door used to stay open. Raw was on a mission to spread lyrical hip-hop throughout the city. And the pirate radio station was the perfect way to do that. With no regulation, he could play uncensored Tupac, Ice-T, N.W.A. All the songs could be dirty. And he could be too. Because I had the station, I was speaking freely. On my station, we were even having sex on the air if we wanted to. If I had to take a dump and I was on the radio station, I go take a dump, pee, I'm holding the mic. Hey, hold up, man, I got to... 
Yep, this shit is real. I'm taking a dump. You guys know it. Let me flush. They, oh, boy, it's funking in here. Hey, 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 drop a beat, man, because I'm really funky, you know? So, and they loved us. The kids loved us. Everybody was following us. It was great, man, because I could say whatever I want. I was uncensored. He could poop. He could fuck. He could keep spreading hip-hop like a virus. There were no rules. And that meant anything could happen when he was on the air. One day while Raw was broadcasting, he got a call. Live on the air. Hey, yo, man, it's me, bro. I've been looking for you. I lost your number, man. I got to get a quarter key right now. What? I say, yo, nigga, keep that shit on the down, man. What the fuck? One of Raw's customers had called the radio station and was now asking live on the line when he could pick up some drugs. Raw wasn't sure about doing a drug deal on air, but then one of Raw's guys stepped in and took over the mic. Man, he said, fuck that, man. Come get that shit, man. We ready to go. And we started serving on the air. And that was like, it got crazy because people we didn't know, even we were serving up the cops. We didn't even know we were serving up the cops. Everybody, we were lawyers, doctors, everybody was coming through just because we were doing it live on the radio. I guess they felt safe. So if these guys are broadcasting, they're serving on the air, it must be cool. Let's go check them out, you know? And we took off. I used to, you know, get on the air and say, 575, suckers. Got that yays, got that flake. Y'all know what time it is right here. Y'all got the number. I'm gonna kick you another number. Get this number, lock it in. Y'all know what time on with 24-7, we got it all right here. They call me raw. Come get it, man. Y'all know what time it is. This is a non-stop enterprise. 24-7, we live. 4750 suckers is online right now. We're driving down 95. You can come and get it right now. It's raw. We got, I mean, we were just lacing everybody out of control. We were straight out of control, serving off the station. And boy, it was around the clock. DJs weren't strictly disc jockeys anymore. Now they were also full-time dope boys. And Raw was their fearless captain. Radio 917 had become nothing more than a trap house with a 60-foot antenna. Literally, I had more dudes paying attention to serving than the radio. So the teams, there was three shifts from, let's say, 7 in the morning to 2 o'clock, from 2 o'clock to 7 o'clock. From seven o'clock to one in the morning, we kept shifting like that with bombs. And each bomb was 20, 30,000 bombs of money that you had to generate. So you and your crew would go out there, sell, collect the money, next crew would come in, sell, collect the money, next crew would come in. And we did that for, man, for a long time. Serving up on the station was risky, brazen even. But it's that kind of reckless personality that made the station so popular. Eventually, they started getting attention from big-name stars. They might not have known about all the things that Raw was doing on air, but they knew that lots of people were listening to this new station. Raw, check this out. This is Chuck D. Public Enemy, number one for radio station, 917 right here. We got, we got, this is Al Boogie from the refugee camp saying one time, whenever we in Miami, we listen to 917. Yeah, yeah, Bust the Rouse, Flip Mode Squad represent, you know what I mean? What's the station? 
Lauren Hill, Busta Rhymes, Chuck D. We're all doing drops for Radio 917. And Raw says that sometimes big names even stop by in person. One guy I personally remember that was Ice-T. At that time, out of all the artists that were coming through, Lauren Hill was famous, but she still wasn't famous, famous, you know, like everyone knew her. But everybody knew Ice-T. Yeah, everybody did know Ice-T. Like from this song, Original Gangster. Ten years ago, I used to listen to rappers flow, talking about the way they rock the mic at the disco. He came to my house with no bodyguards or nothing. He had a big old shiny 45 pistol. He's a real G. That dude pulled up to my house, and when he walked in, he pulled it out. And he said, what you want me to do with this? I said, just throw it in the drawer with the rest of them. He threw it in. Had a big old $25,000 presidential, big old chain, everything. According to Raw, Ice-T had heard about him, about how he was playing fast and loose on his station. So being the G that he is, he pulled Raw to the side and warned him. He told me some good stuff, man. He told me, bro, you ready? And I said, ready for what? And he said, man, let's talk about you on the West Coast everywhere I go. Man, they coming for you. Say, you're too free, bro. They coming for you. I said, yeah, but they ain't coming for me right now. And he said, man, you need to take care of yourself. Your family's here. You know, my children, all my family, everything was right there. One big smorgasbord. And um, he told me, bro, you need to clean up, man. Get your family out of here, you know? Clean up, bro. You got the money. You got everything, man. Clean up. Let this shit run itself. But I was already too knee-deep. It wasn't shortly after that that they came and got me, you know? After the break, the boys come for Raw. One night after Ice-T's visit, Ross says he was at the station, broadcasting with the rest of the DJs. When they realized the car pulled up outside the house. And it had like silver gold letters on it. They came to the house, it was about 3.30 in the morning, and I had four Rottweilers, so he couldn't come on the property. But he hit the uh-uh in front of my house, and we're like, holy shit. Put everything away, get the We're running all through the house, going crazy, you know, putting stuff up. Finally, I got enough courage to go outside and speak to the guy. So I go out and speak to the guy. I said, well, how can I help you, sir? And he says, um, any chance you guys are running an FM station out of your, your home? And I said, no, of course not. And he says, will you turn around for me? And he pointed at my antenna. It was 60 feet high. He said, that there is an FM tower and you have Colombian antennas. And he says, I know because this is what I do. It wasn't the FBI. It wasn't the DEA. It wasn't even the cops. It was the FCC, the Federal Communication Commission. Basically, the police for the airwaves. He said, look, I'm not here to shut you down or radio. I'm here to let you know we found you and you got 72 hours before the boys come and shut you down. And when they come, they're going to wreck your whole stuff, take your equipment, they're going to tear your house down. So I'm, I'm being a nice guy, and he says, look, 
Opalaka Airport is not too far from here. And when the airplanes come down to a certain altitude, they're listening to hip hop. They can't get the signal from the tower. They can't land in Opalaka while you're spinning. And I was like, what? We shut it off. So now I had to come with the next master plan. How I'm gonna keep spinning because it's addictive. I had to find a way to get back on the air. Raw was hooked. The FCC had given him a clear warning. Shut down the station or we'll shut it down for you. But he wasn't shook. So he decided to come up with a new plan to keep playing his music. I had a tour bus. We used to call it old school, new school. It was a regular, uh, a real school bus that we turned into a tour bus. We gutted it out, took all the chairs out. We put black rug inside. We decked it out super bad. And we used to DJ out the bus to do parties. But then I thought about it. I said, wait a minute, the system's already there. If I could get a tower and I put my amplifier in there, we could transmit from the bus. The 60-foot tower in his backyard was too big to mount on the back of a bus. So he hit up his contact in Columbia and struck a deal. He'd send back the 60-footer, and they'd send him something that was easier to move with. She took the tower back and she sent me a crank up. But this joker was super heavy, so I had to build a platform on the back of the bus to solder it on. And with two lugs this big around, I'm, the lugs alone weigh like a pound a piece. It's two lugs, you got to take them off with a big wrench. You bring the tower down, you put the 20-foot rod in it with a pirate flag, and then you pick the tower back up, tie it up, and now you crank it up. Clack, 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 and it goes up. It's 91.7, we're live at FM Station. We're from Miami, this is what we're doing. We're getting down like this. Sometimes they had to park the radio station, and whenever they did, they would use copper spikes to ground the electricity. We had spikes that were two feet long of copper so we could ground ourselves. Come with a sledgehammer, you put the, the ground cable, put it in, Bum, 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 put it in. So wherever I went, I left a copper spike in the ground. They traveled from place to place, throwing parties in the street wherever they stopped. And if you'd miss them, you'd notice marks on the ground, left by the copper spikes. Like skid marks from a getaway car, there was always a sign that DJ Raw had just been broadcasting from your town. Where did you get the, the, I don't even know if the word is the construction know-how. I'll tell you, uh, uh, I have a philosophy I say. If a man did it, I could do it too. Mm. I say I need two people. I need the one that's having the heart attack and the one that's donating the heart, and I'll do the transplant. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm just being serious, you know, yeah, being real. I'm a handy guy. I don't, I'm, 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 I'm going to tell you straight up. I, I don't know where I get them skills from. Maybe I picked them up growing up at home. I don't know. But I'm always, like, opening up TVs and messing with stuff, you know? Yeah. Like, I'm that kind of guy that just fixes it. Transmission to your car is messed up. I'll, I'll drop it. I'll put it back up. I don't need to know how to do it. I just do it. Raw was at the top of his game. Radio 917 was the station of choice for hip-hop heads in Miami. Meanwhile, he was still selling lots of drugs on and off the air. But as time went on, his success started to weigh on his conscience. He would sit down with his right-hand man, a guy named Enemy. At this point in our conversation, it starts pouring outside. We're sitting in Raw's car, and you can hear the rain splashing on the roof. 
me and enemy, we used to sit down, man, and say, what are we going to do with all this money, bro? We got houses, we got cars, we got jewelry. What are we going to do with this money? And enemy was like, man, I'm feeling guilty behind all this shit that we're doing, you know? Because we seen some beautiful dime pieces turn into some rock monsters. You know, if you sell crack for three years straight and someone starts buying from you, you can't see it in a week or two. You have to see it in two or three years because then you're going to see what you created. And that's when we started seeing, you know, I saw my cousin, man, he got cracked out. I was like, damn, this is getting crazy, you know? And enemy was like, man, we got, we got to find something to do, bro. We got to find something to do because it's, it's getting crazy, raw, man. He says he wanted to find something to do that would make up for all the drugs they'd pumped into the streets of Miami. And it wasn't long before the perfect idea came to him. One day, he was hanging out with his friend, watching TV. Omar Islam, he was the chapter leader, or probably still is, of, universe, of Zulu Nation. And I had one of them big screen TVs that, I don't know, old school screen TV, you know. It was big anyway. We were getting high, smoking weed, and there was some shit up there about Woodstock. And Omar Islam said, you know what we need to do for Florida? We need to do a Hoodstock. And I looked at him and I said, man, I said a hood stock. He said, yeah, man, them white folks are doing that shit over there and look at how successful it is for them. Hit my joint one more time and I thought about that shit. Ideas like these, ideas that come out of ciphers, rarely ever make it out the room. Like the smoke, the idea usually vanishes into thin air. But if anyone could actually bring one of those impossible, even ridiculous sounding concepts to life, it was raw. And I say, you know what? We're going to do a hood stop. Live from South Florida's news station, WSVN7. Topping the weekend off, hundreds of people turned out for hood stock at Roberto Clemente Park in Wynwood. In 1994, with the help of his closest friends and business partners, Raw went through with all the planning to put together the first hip-hop festival in South Florida, Hoodstock. He got approval from the city, arranged for security, got vendors, stage equipment, everything. He even had the advertising on lock. But in true Raw fashion, he couldn't avoid pissing off another government agency. Bro, we printed up 50,000 flyers. I got my 50,000 flyers, 50,000 stamps. We put a stamp, called people up, Yellow Pages mailed all the flyers out. A week later, the federal postmaster rushed my house because we were mailing bulk mail out of my house without having a license. You know what was our penalty? Six gangsters had to go to postmaster school and learn how to mail with zip codes. And we had to stay there six hours a day for like two weeks till we learned how to separate mail by zip code. And that was our big punishment. When it was finished, we were looking at each other, man, you need to go get a job in the post office, nigga. That's what you need to do, you know? (laughs) Yeah. The day of Hoodstock finally arrived. Hundreds of people started lining up outside Roberto Clemente Park in Wynwood. 
The event was free. But before people could get in, Raw had to make sure that everyone knew this was going to be a positive event. So he set up a rule. If you wanted to get in, you had to leave your contraband at the door. There was an empty barrel right outside the gate. Guns, knives, drugs, whatever you had, you couldn't bring it into the park. So they would dump it in, in the barrel. So whatever you had, weed, cocaine, crack, alcohol, a barrel full. So I probably collected like a half a kilo in coke and probably like two pounds in weed. Damn. What do you do with that? We got high. <laughs> this is the kind of thing you would have heard once you walked through the gates of the festival. The festival was hip-hop to the core. Its rhythms, its rhymes. Performances included Arcanelli, the boot camp click. Even DMX and the Rough Riders tried to get on stage. It was everything Rod missed out on when he left New York. Before we go on, just want to say one thing. This is a great moment for hip-hop. Make some motherfucking noise. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. In the middle of all this, the drug dealer who was still a Bronx b-boy at heart must have taken a second to look around at his work. And what he saw probably made him feel more at home in Miami than ever. MCs battling in small ciphers, graffiti artists tagging up walls, and b-boys breaking on the basketball courts. Years earlier, Luke had brought rappers into Miami to play the Pac Jam, a single warehouse where people gathered and listened to music they couldn't hear anywhere else in Miami. And with Hoodstock, Raw was continuing that tradition. But he brought it out the dark warehouse of the Pac Jam and into the daylight. And that's where I believe I became even a celebrity in my own neighborhood because all the gas stations, the little stores, all the businesses were like, when are you going to do it again? They sold everything. There's this photo of Hoodstock that appears in the Miami Herald. It's a sea of Kangol hats, fitted caps, door knockers and headbands, all bopping to the music playing from the stage. And the headline? Something positive in the hood. The first Hoodstock was so successful that Raw put the festival on two more times, in 1995 and 96. He was set to do it again the following year, but on September 16, 1997, Ice-T's warning finally came true. Well, agents make a major bust today, confiscating cocaine, guns, and cash, and they arrest a local DJ, a disc jockey. Raúl Medina, un disc jockey que operaba una radio clandestina, ha sido señalado como uno de los principales distribuidores. He's known on the streets as DJ Raw. What happened when they arrested you? Was it like they kicked in your door 4 a.m. in the morning, or was it yeah, like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they came, they came with the whole SWAT. 
They tore my gate down. They dragged my Suburban out to the street so then they could hook up to the gate and they could rip the gate down and bust the door down. And I'm hearing all that shit happening and I run to the door and the door falls on me. And the SWAT dude with it, don't move, motherfucker, don't move. But I had four Rottweilers that were in the house with me. And they're coming from the back of the room. Woo, 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 woo. Rottweilers, Rottweilers, back up, back up. Everybody backed up. I got the door off of me. And I'm in my BVDs, you know. I run to my room. And I told my wife, get up, bitch, get up. They're here. They're coming for us. Get dressed, get dressed. So I'm getting dressed. I'm putting on my case. I'm putting on my jeans. I'm getting ready because I know I'm going in. And right as I put my shirt on, I get yoked. They got me. They're dragging me out. Got the right to remain silent, all that shit. You might have asked yourself, how the fuck was this guy getting away with all this shit? Turns out he wasn't. The DEA had been putting together a massive case against 26 people in Miami, who in one way or another had ties to a Colombian drug cartel. Raw was one of those people. We began at the street level. We got into uh, DJ Raw. We started making buys. Eventually got the Colombian cell head that was actually calling Colombia and ordering up these shipments of cocaine. What were the charges that they, they brought against you? Trafficking, you know, conspiracy, a lot of bullshit. You know what I'm saying? Investigators confiscated cash. A lot of bullshit charges. 16 kilos of cocaine. That's all it was, you know, because they didn't have no drugs. Hundreds of marijuana plants. Just everybody goes into a telling frenzy. Everybody's telling on each other, you know? And a small arsenal of weapons. Raw got 10 years in prison. And as he was dragged away in handcuffs, he gave one last interview to the press. Why'd you do it? I guess it was just to, to bring something positive to the area of Wynwood. The money? Yes, sir. Ma'am. How so? How did you bring something positive to the neighborhood? I brought the hood stock for world peace that gathers over 10,000 heads. They come all over the world, and you know, and I brought that something that my neighbor has a lot of negativity. What about and the I, drugs? Or you were bringing drugs as well? Yes, I was bringing drugs in. Raw got out of prison in 2007 and started a new hustle. DJ Raw now runs a business called Raw Hemp Edibles. He sells CBD-infused cookies and cakes. And Ross also started organizing a new event, the 420 Broward Festival. I'm not cooking crack cookies. I'm cooking edibles. That's helping people. It's helping them with their cancer. It's helping them with their illnesses. And um, that, for me, is like, like a beautiful thing. Like, it, it gave me purpose. When you play a significant part in helping people and it generates money... That's the best money to get. Hearing Raw's story and spending time with them, it got me thinking. Miami's a city of dreamers, but it's also a city of renegades, hustlers, and schemers. And no one knows that better than Raw. They say in Florida, <laughs> you need a job, you need a business, and you need a good hustle. There's this enterprising spirit that runs through the city of Miami. Maybe it's the glitz and glamour of South Beach, and folks wanting a taste of that life, even if for a moment. Maybe it's that Miami's a city of immigrants, people who fought to survive and thrive in a city where they were outsiders. Or maybe it's just the heat that makes your skin burn, speeds up your pulse, and forces you to get up and grind. 
wherever that go-getter spirit comes from, it seems to be pushing the people of Miami to always stay in their hustle. And with a drive like that, there's no barriers that can keep Miami folk from doing exactly what they say they're going to do. The door closes in their face, they say, fuck it. I just punch my way through the wall. And when I get through to the other side, I'm bringing all the homies with me. Raw had that spirit, turning a small drug deal into a major operation, then using the guilt from all the damage he'd done to bring one of the first hip-hop music festivals to the city. The Two Live crew had that spirit, and you see it in a new generation of Miami artists, Ski Mask the Slump God, City Girls, and Denzel Curry. And this new generation isn't selling mixtapes out the trunks of their cars anymore. They're uploading their shit to SoundCloud and YouTube. But the spirit, the spirit remains the same. It's the same drive, the same heat, the same get it out the mud attitude that makes Miami a city of moguls. Stay tuned and keep your eye on the mogul feed because we've got more Miami stories for you. Next up, Walshy Fire from Major Lazer helps us tell the tale of one of the city's most legendary pirate radio DJs, Uncle Lau. I used to sit in my car and I used to be like, yo, what is going on? And for four fucking hours, he'd just be going, Santa Claus coming, Santa Claus coming, Santa Claus coming, Santa Claus coming. And you're just like, holy shit, it's Christmas time. Shut your mind. Mogul is a production of Spotify and Gimlet Media. This episode is produced by Wallace Mack and Saeed Tijan Thomas, with help from Gabby Bulgarelli. Our senior producer is Matthew Nelson. Our editors are Lynn Levy, Caitlin Kenny, and Chris Morrow. Sound design and mixing by Haley Shaw. Music supervision by Matthew Boll and Liz Fulton. This episode was scored by Nana Quabena and So Wiley. Our theme music is by So Wiley, and our credits music is by Prince Paul and Don Newkirk with fact-checking by Saray Shockley. Follow us on Spotify or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter for all the latest news and the behind-the-scenes look at the making of the show. Our handle is at mobile.